Mark here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Lambda Days is coming, taking place the 13th and 14th of February 2020 in Krakow, Poland. Lambda Days is a one-of-a-kind experience in the functional world. For two days, you are at the center of the functional programming world. It is a place where academia meets industry, where research and practical application collide. Find out what is possible with functional programming. Explore the latest in battle-tested Scala, Erlang, and Haskell. Experience the energy F-Sharp and Elixir bring to the table. Meet the innovators working with Elm, Unit, and OCaml. See what they come up with next. This year, they join forces with the trends in functional programming, who will be running two dedicated tracks, showcasing the latest academic research on functional programming. Codebeam San Francisco will be taking place on the 5th and 6th of March 2020. Join the only North American conference to cover all of the game languages, including Erlang and Elixir. Created for developers by developers, Codebeam SF is dedicated to bringing the best minds in the Erlang and Elixir communities together to share, learn, inspire over two days. Learn from 50-plus cutting-edge talks and their in-depth training program how Beam languages are revolutionizing areas like IoT, blockchain, fintech, security, machine learning, and more. Elm in the Spring will be back May 1st, 2020. Elm in the Spring. All Elm, all day. Elm in the Spring is a single-track, single-day conference for developers who love Elm. Whether you're an Elm expert scaling up your production app, or you're just starting out with your first Elm project, join them for a great day of learning, teaching, and community. If you know of any of the conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show your support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you'd leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Eric Nolan. Eric, welcome back to the show. It's been a while, so do you mind telling everyone what you've been up to in the past ooh, almost two years? Two years, yeah. Um, what have I been up to? Mostly, I've been doing closure videos at purelyfunctional.tv. And for the last, I guess, over a year now, I've been working on my book, which is called Grokking Simplicity. It's all about functional programming. So your book got on my radar because you're taking an interesting approach to the book, or at least you started with an interesting approach to the book. We'll get into what made you decide you wanted to approach the book, but you started with the podcast as you were narrating your thoughts on this, and you're like, well, I'm going to try and get this out, get this down as words, get it transcribed, and maybe this will make it easier to write. So, yeah, right. It was an interesting approach. I had caught a number, sadly fell behind, but still caught a number of them. What prompted the book and what prompted that idea of saying, you know what, I'm just going to start this as a random stream of thoughts that are coming to my mind on a topic, and what was the catalyst there for you, and how did that wind up working for you so far? That's a good question. It's bringing back some memories. 
This is my fourth, according to your site, this is my fourth time on the show. And the last time was back in December of 2017. And at that time, I was working on a talk to give at a conference in the Czech Republic in Prague. And the topic that I thought of had been inspired by a blog post I wrote. And it was all about the difference between the functional paradigm and the object-oriented paradigm and the imperative paradigm. Like the three, I guess, main ones that we program in all the time. And so I had this blog post. So I guess it started as a blog post, realizing, look, the differences are very fundamental, right? And the idea for functional programming was that in functional programming, we divide everything up into, I think at the time I called it effects, pure functions, and data. And so I gave a talk about that. I decided to expand on that. And I called the talk a theory of functional programming. So the idea was I'm going to really dive in here and like turn this into a theory. In the same way that I've read other books that are like trying to develop a theory of a certain topic that's like, you know, everyone's using terms and stuff, but no one has a real handle on what it really means. And the idea was to turn it into something more formal. And one of the problems that I've found in functional programming is that there are different definitions. And a lot of them are based on this idea of if you program with just pure function. So it's very reductionist view of functional programming and didn't really speak to me as a working functional programmer in industry. Like I do more than just write pure functions. Like I've got a lot of effects going on and I've got a lot of mutable state. It's in the database. It's somewhere, right? So this definition didn't really work, but it's not like object-oriented programming either, which is all about like messages passing between objects interpreting the messages, and you can communicate to the objects that you have references to. But functional programming is all about what I eventually called actions, calculations, and data. And so I got back from the conference, and I was still thinking about the idea. And eventually, you know, I was talking to people about it, and they're like, this sounds like you have a lot to say about it talking about it too much, I guess. Oh, and someone who had written a bunch of books said, look, it's much easier to edit existing text than it is to write new text. So why don't you talk into a microphone and then have it transcribed and then edit that? And then I thought, well, if I'm going to be talking into a microphone, I might as well turn it into a podcast. And this was really nice, actually. I had a lot to say, (laughs) it turns out. I started using a lot of what I would call the downtime in my day to record these things. And I might record three or four in a day, three or four 20-minute talks about some topic. And I do it on my phone, and I get video too, so I have all the video of it, and have the audio, and I'd have it transcribed. And a few months after I started, I was contacted by Manning, the technical book publisher, and they asked me if I wanted to do a book 
on the topic. And I told him, you know, I'm already planning on doing it. I was going to self-publish. I feel like I could have done that. I've published a lot of content online. I know how to make money from it. But they convinced me to sign up with them as the publisher of it. And so I've been working on it. Oh man, when did I sign the contract? Like July 2018 or June 2018, something like that. And I've been through so many drafts of the first few chapters, taking the ideas and turning them into text and then reading it a week later, like, this is not it. I'm not getting at the thing. It's all good ideas. It's just not going to satisfy the goal that I have. The goal is to start a conversation about functional programming, a conversation in a literature. Object-oriented programming has a literature that you can start discussing. So you can read all sorts of object-oriented design books. You can read how do you do object-oriented programming from domain modeling. And, you know, there's all sorts of text out there. And you might disagree with it, but it's all part of this larger conversation that the software industry is having about object-oriented programming. And you just don't find books like that in functional programming. It goes back to what I was trying to do with the title, a theory of functional programming, like finally give it some kind of formalism that is practical. Like it does explain what we do, but also lays the groundwork so that other people can come And when they disagree with me, they're at least disagreeing with something that has some merit to talk about, you know? So, yeah, I've been working on the book, threw away three drafts of the first few chapters, and it wasn't until January of 2019, this year, that I finally figured out what the format was supposed to be. You said the format was kind of different. It is. It's not very textual. It's much more visual. There's a lot of layout. It's not just text flowing from page to page like most books are. It's got pictures of people, characters who are asking questions or making comments. And there's a lot of, I think in chapter three, we start with a wireframe of the GUI. And you can see that when you click here, it does this and you click. And anyway, it's a different layout style. Yeah. So if you go through those drafts, what prompted the reasoning of this layout and this format because it is different. I like it. It's just not something you usually see even with starting textbooks kind of things where you're trying to get to the basic principles and introduce people to the basic principles. It's different. It's good, but you went through a number of drafts and you finally landed on this. Does this stem from the way you do your videos with your little bit of almost when you cut to the slide view of your videos and you have some of this stuff? What spoke to you about this format? How are you finding it working now that, because you're happy with it now, that you went through a couple of drafts. So what is it that called out to you? In one of the drafts, this draft was getting good. It was, I think it was the third one before I found this new format. It was very textual, but it's very narrative as well. It was a story. It was about someone who was creating a pizza restaurant. And this pizza restaurant was robotic. It was in the future. And they were taking over the planet with pizza franchises. And they were facing different scaling challenges along the way. And by the end of what I had written, they were 
starting to take over Mars because Mars had been colonized, but they needed more pizza restaurants, apparently. So that narrative, that story was starting to tax my writing ability. I am not a fiction author. I cannot do that that well and like maintain storylines and make sure the dialogue is compelling. You know, I'm just not good at that. And my editor told me a picture could just totally clear this up and you would cut out what's taking you two pages to get to because you're trying to have reasonable dialogue could just be a picture of a person who's upset. Okay, they're upset in a picture. You don't have to explain it. They're just angry. And so it it just cuts out so much text because you don't have to explain who this person is. You can just put a little caption underneath of who they are and then they have a frowny face (laughs) and they have a call out, you know, the talk bubble that just says what they're thinking, right? And that's it. And I tried it and my editor, he was totally right. I could cut out pages and pages of back and forth between two characters just because the picture tells the story better than I could. Now, it's not even comic book quality. It's not custom pictures for every page. It's the same picture over and over. But it really does cut out a lot of the text that I was just not good at getting people to say stuff in a natural way, in a short way. But then when I changed to this more visual format, I was. And then, of course, he also has this other thing he was telling me, which was, you know, I've given a bunch of conference talks and who hasn't made a slide deck? He was like, just imagine each page is a slide and you just start with the most important thing you need to show, like to show, and then just put annotations around it. This is all the stuff you would say in a talk about this slide. Just put that around it. And then if you need to show another visual, you change the page and you start fresh and you have a new page and you put stuff around it, all the stuff you're going to say. And I just took to it. I really like it. I like the format. So you're establishing this theory. Who is the audience for this book? Because I could see a couple of people. One is there's people who know functional programming that you're just trying to get them all to use the same words. So they're not talking past each other because what's the old, what's the functional programming joke? Ask a thousand functional programmers what to define functional programming. You're going to get a thousand and one plus answers. Yeah. So there's that audience. There's the audience, which the Grokney Simplicity title seems to hint at is just like, Hey, here's everybody who's interested in some of this stuff. How do like just how functional programming ideals, even if you don't go in a fully functional language because you use JavaScript, like, Here's how this stuff can apply. What are your primary targets of some of this stuff? And how are you essentially making sure you hit them up with some of these? I think at one point, uh, one of the previous conversations, you mentioned you did have someone that you were helping to mentor along some functional programming stuff in the past. How are you making sure that you're getting across and you're actually getting to your theory in a way that resonates with not only you, but the people you're trying to get in this conversation about some having some literature around it. The person that I'm trying to reach with this book, the main person, is someone who maybe looked up functional programming or they've heard about it, 
And when they turn to whatever comes up in Google or whatever resources they have to learn about it, they are not served well. It's talked about in this academic way. It seems very impractical. The material makes all these assumptions about what you know. I mean, just for instance, the common definition that you'll find on Wikipedia says, I'm paraphrasing, but it's functional programming. It's programming without side effects or that avoids the use of side effects. Okay, what is a side effect? Like they don't talk about that. It just assumed that you know what that means. And then how do you program without side effects? There's all these questions that come up that the article doesn't help you with. And if side effects are that important that you would define the whole term based on that, then they must be part of the paradigm, right? This is like how you build a theory, right? Like how you make formalized systems is by seeing all these terms that are being used in the object-oriented programming world. It's not based on anything about side effects. They talk about side effects now, now that functional programming is becoming a thing. But where in the message passing paradigm do side effects come in? It's not a primary concern there. And so side effects are actually an important part of the theory of functional programming. And this is kind of getting deep into the theory, but I feel like functional programmers have a lot to say about side effects. We don't just avoid them. We do avoid them in a certain sense of avoid, right? But we also, when we need to use them, we have a lot to say. We have a lot of techniques for dealing with them. And that is something that the Wikipedia article will not help you with. And so I hope the book shows a much more, I mean, I want to say practical, but it's actually much more just like day-to-day, professional functional, not researchers, because they're doing a different thing, right? I'm talking about people writing software for a company that's trying to make something happen in the world. They are using a lot of side effects. I'm calling them actions, right? They're using a lot of state, mutable state. This also falls under actions. But they have ways of making it safer, right? They use them when it's appropriate, and they have techniques and tools for using them well. So I feel like there's this whole group of people who are pragmatic-minded, and someone tells them, you got to get into functional programming. And they look into it, and they're like, there's not enough material out here to really make it practical. It sounds like this academic thing. It doesn't sound that useful. I already know how to program. Like, why would I? And it's, it's for those kinds of people. And then I also think that it's for people who know those people. <laughs> so people ask me a lot, like, what books would you recommend for functional programming? And I can't recommend any book that I've ever read on it because they start with, it's either a book about a specific language or it's really deep. It's kind of monads are on in the second chapter, you know? It's like, why are we getting into monads already? There's so much to learn before we get there. So I wanted a book for people who are into functional programming to recommend to their friends who aren't yet, yet, because they would be if there was a good explanation of it. You've called them out a couple of times. Actions, calculations, and data. 
Can you just give a brief overview for anybody who hasn't caught your podcast or hasn't looked sure. at the book yet and just give the very high level definition. So as we continue with this conversation, we make sure that people are still following along or the, or if they want to pass this off to anybody else, they now start having, can start using this terminology when they're trying to help introduce others to functional programming, even if they haven't gotten the book yet. Yeah, sure. Actions, calculations, and data. They're the three main categories of code that a functional programmer recognizes. And all code falls into one of them. And they're completely disjoint, right? So if it's an action, it can't be a calculation. So actions are, I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you're probably a functional programmer. So I'm going to come at it from that approach. An action is what you would normally call an impure function, okay? Except I don't want to use the term function because it's a language feature, right? I mean, I know that there's mathematical functions, but people aren't thinking in mathematics. They're thinking in programming. So when you say a function, let's say you're working in JavaScript, there's a bunch of side effects. There's a bunch of impure things that aren't functions. They're operators, right? Like the assignment operator or the plus plus operator. These things are mutating state, but they're not functions. So I just want to sidestep that whole confusion and talk about actions, okay? So the thing about actions is that they depend on when they are run or how many times they are run. They're time-bound. That's what's important about them, is getting them to happen in sequence or at least you know, in some cases, like not at the same time, if you're doing multi-threaded, like you don't want someone to read as you're writing, it could cause race conditions. So actions are these time-bound things. They depend on when they're run, how many times they're run. They're problematic. They're hard to test, right? Because they depend on when they run or how many times they run. So if you're running tests, you probably want to run the same thing multiple times to test it in multiple different ways, right? Well, now you're running the same thing multiple times. So, you know, that's one of the problems with actions is that it depends how many times you want to run it, when you run it. So you could run the same action on different machines. Let's say one in development and then one on the build server for your tests. That's two different times that they're getting run and two different machines. It's harder to test because you have to set up the environment they're going to run in, make sure that it's not running at the same time as other things. It's a big deal. But we need them. That's the other edge of the sword, right? It's a double-edged sword. You need them. You need to send an email. You need to write to the database. You need to launch the rocket. All these things are what you're writing the software for, right? So you can't avoid them for everything, but you can avoid them for a lot of things. Because you do want testable code. You do want some kind of ability to reason about the code itself without thinking about what's run before and what's going to be running at the same time, stuff like that. And so the answer to that is calculations. Calculations are what you might call a pure function, pure functions. But again, they're not all functions in the programming feature, programming language feature sense. So I call them calculations. These are pieces of code that can run as many times as you want, they'll always give the same answer. It's pure functions. If you're a functional programmer, you probably already understand the term pure function. 
You give it the same arguments, you'll get the same answer, no matter how many times or when you run it. These things are totally safe to run in multiple threads at the same time on different machines. doesn't matter, right? And then there's data, and data is inert. So data is, what do you think of as data? Strings, numbers, hash maps, lists, arrays, that kind of thing. But there's a double-edged sword with their benefits and their disadvantages. The benefit is that it's totally inert. You can store it to disk, read it back later, and it cannot fail, right? It's, it's a completely understood thing. Whereas when you have a calculation, it is a Turing complete system, <laughs> right? Like every function is like a Turing machine. You don't know what's going to happen when you turn it on. Is it going to halt? Not sure. Like that's the definition of Turing, right? You could know as a programmer, right? What I mean is if you pass a function to another function, it's a black box. It doesn't know what it's going to do. Whereas if you pass data, it has a known structure. As long as it's a valid input for that function, it has a known structure. It knows how to deal with it. So data, that's one of the advantages. Another advantage is that you can interpret it in multiple ways. I like to use this you know, example of like the logs, server logs that we write to a file. You know, you can use them to debug a bug that you found, but you can also use them to figure out statistics on like analytics of who's using our system and how many people are using it, that kind of thing. When those logs were written, they were written in a format that would just be very neutral and you could read it in for different purposes. The disadvantage that is like the other side of the coin is that it requires some interpretation. A function has a known interface, you call it. You call a function, you pass it some arguments, you call it, and it does its thing. Data, though, what is a number? It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have any meaning. You have to interpret it and say, oh, the four bytes in this location are an integer that represent the age of the person, right? Okay, I have to interpret that. I have to know that somehow, right? My program has to be encoded with that, right? So you get multiple interpretations. You can interpret something as any way you like, but then you need at least one. That's a disadvantage as I see it. It would be really nice if you could run some ancient scroll from Egypt. You know, you just like double click on the corner and it like runs. You don't have to decode the language and like figure out what it means. It just does its thing, right? That's kind of the magic of computer and a phone. You like just turn it on and it just works and it tells you things. But data is, I mean, I think it's, it's a cool thing to have as a separate entity, as a separate category, because it lets you tap into all this record keeping history and technology that humans have been developing since, you know, the dawn of writing. It's the same thing. We're just, I remember learning about writing started with people counting heads of cattle, you know, and they tied knots and strings to count as the cattle would go through the gate. You'd tie another knot. So there was some court accountant who would do this. And like, we still have those. They were buried somewhere and like, we can dig them up and we can interpret it in different ways. We can say, oh, what kind of technology were they using to record this? That's one piece of information we can glean from it. We can also figure out what their economy might have been like. 
right? What were the big years of cattle production? What were the slow years? You know, all this stuff is data that they weren't thinking about. They were just like, I want to know how much this guy owes me for all these cows, right? But now we can interpret it in other ways at thousands of years later, which I think is pretty cool. And we can tap into that whole technology and, and knowledge that's been developed in humanity for so long. And then actions and calculations. Mm-hmm. Those can be hard to distinguish unless you're writing in something that's very Haskell flavored. Because when you get into Haskell, you see that IO there or you see something else there, and that pretty much signifies that this is going to be an action. How have you found, because you call it out in the book, you're like, oh, there's only one action in this thing, and probably what, chapter three, maybe chapter four? It's like, there's only, it's like, nope. Actions are everywhere because actions <laughs> contaminate. Yeah. So how have you found doing closure in various other languages, especially having come and having done Haskell, about signifying the here are my pure stuff, here are my calculations, these are the things that I say. How do I name spaces? How do I get these? And how do I know that I don't accidentally contaminate because Mm. This thing, which I thought was a calculation, is really an action, or or how do I make sure that for my patterns and practices, how would you found those things to help people think about and realize, hey, you know this is a calculation, but as soon as you add this one extra step, you've now contaminated it, and that propagates back out and make sure you keep the calculations calculations instead of crossing that potentially blurry line just mm. by looking at a function declaration or because maybe it's very three layers deep, like you cite in your chapter where you're like, nope, it's all the way down there that it doesn't. I have a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is, I don't know, but closure programmers do it all the time. Like we don't have a type system and we manage to do functional programming. So I would also imagine it's the same in something like F sharp or ML where they can do side effects like right inside of functions and they seem to be okay too. Even though they have a type system, it's just the type system is not preventing IO. I do have to say that Haskell gets it right in the sense that if you're going to draw a line as a language, right? So you don't know what people will want to program in your language. So you're designing this language and you want the type system to help, where do you make, you know, you could say, well, it, this IO type is just for console input and output, right? But then we have another type that's for web requests. I mean, you could, you could imagine that. But the idea of like just putting everything impure into one big type, I think that that was brilliant, right? Just like, let's just contain all this messy stuff into a type and let people develop new types inside of that that kind of restrict it. But start with like, this is everything. And like that line is exactly where I draw actions, right? So I guess I agree with the way Haskell has done it. What I don't agree with is that a lot of people would say that you need a type system or you can't do functional programming. I don't agree with that. I prefer closure. I use it all the time. And people seem to be able to figure out what is doing an effect and what is not. 
I also think that this is something I haven't gotten to in the book yet, actually. I don't know if I will. But in, in the talk I gave back in 2017, I talk about how functional programming is actually, it's all an illusion, right? It's all something that we have built up on top of a mutable system. Like every instruction in the x86 instruction set mutates something. Like it's storing something in a register, it's writing to memory. Even if you do plus, it is modifying a register. Like it's putting the answer somewhere. You're losing whatever was there before, right? And our languages are building up on top of that a notion of instead of writing over the existing memory that you can still refer to, we're going to find a new piece of memory from the heap and write only to that. Then we'll freeze it. And then if you need to write something else, we'll find a new piece of memory. So like we've created this illusion, right? And so at some point in your functional programming journey, you realize, or at least I realized, and I, I think most people do, that you realize this illusion and you, you're thankful for it. Like it's helpful. It very much is something you want to use. But at some point you realize, look, if this function I'm calling takes 24 hours, it might be a pure function. It might be a complete, you know, there's no IO. It just takes a long time to run. I wish I had run it yesterday because then I'd have the answer now. And if it matters when you run it, then it's probably an action, right? I can't just run this one, you know, and get the answer in some negligible amount of time, like most functions. It's a big calculation. It's probably an action, right? Likewise, you could set up some temporary file. You put it in some directory. You name it some random string name. So like no other... Because normally we think of writing and reading to files as I.O., right? But you could, in a functional language, write and read to this file that nothing else is going to write to at the same time. And you do it in such a controlled way that you trust it just like you would trust grabbing some memory from the heap, you know? And so, because that's modifying stuff too, right? Like there's mutation going on there under the hood. So if you trust it that much, then that's not really an action. It's a calculation. So I feel like in Clojure, because we don't have the types, we kind of play much more fast and loose with this distinction between actions and calculations. For example, I'll have some calculation. It's a pure function. But I'm curious, what number is it getting right here? I'll throw in a print line. And so now, ostensibly, this is an action now because I put a print line in there. But you know what? I'm going to put it in. I'm going to run it. I'm going to see what it does. And I'm going to delete it. It was an action for like 20 seconds and a minute. Was that a problem? Now, of course, it is a problem if it slips into production. And it would have been nice to have something check that. I'm not saying that. But what I'm trying to say is we do play faster and looser. Whereas in Haskell, it's kind of meaningless to print some intermediate value because it's all lazy, like it wouldn't have been even calculated <laughs> until you printed it. And then that changes the type. And so it's a whole ordeal. So I don't even know if I'm going to get to that in the book, this idea that it's an illusion. I feel like that might be a little advanced for the readers. Does that answer the question? Most of it. 
And your Haskell I.O. and stuff reminded me of the Java days with the checked exceptions versus unchecked exceptions. Uh And it's almost kind of what I was getting at was, have you found any conventions or anything else that kind of gives some hints? Because I noticed even having done this, it's easy to fall into the imperative style while doing functional, but say, oh, this function or this method, depending on what language you're you're doing and you're you're trying to do functional style in. It's like, oh, okay, this this became a little bit more imperative and I got some actions contaminating this. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's good because this is really at the top level, but if someone else tries to consume this thing, they're now getting that side effect. So where it could be this is at the outer shell of it, the outer outermost layer maybe that needs to be split a little bit more, signify that, well, this is the outer layer for me, but it might be your inner layer, so be wary, this is still an action contaminating. And it's one of those things that it's from a code organization perspective and pulling people in and getting people familiar, whether it's closure or anything else. I say that had a conversation, maybe it was Karen Meyer, there was the hint of the Rudy Bang at the end that says, hey, this is going to be something that's doing... It's doing some state modification or some important thing. or yeah. This version throws the exception instead of just return nil yeah. in Ruby. Uh. Have you found anything that are good hints? Is it naming conventions? Is it are there other things? Is it code comments that say, hey, be warned, here be dragons, this is an action. Consume at your own risk. Use this other version for the pure calculation. Because you talk about, I need to generate the emails, I need to send the emails. Those are two different things. So if you really want the emails only, look at the other thing, because this is going to send them off too. In Clojure, we have this convention, and it comes from Lisp, of putting a bang at the end of something to indicate a side effect. It's not respected that much. Print line does not have a bang at the end of it, when in theory it should. So... I don't know if there is a good convention out there that will, because what you want is for the code to look wrong, right? You look at it and you're like, wait a second, this is calling something with a bang, but it doesn't have a bang itself, you know? And so then you put the bang there and then everything that calls it now, oh, you have to put a bang there. And so you viscerally feel how many bangs you had to (laughs) insert. I totally understand the problem. It's just, in my experience, that has not been that important. It's always been pretty clear what is a calculation and what is not. Then let's step back and approach it from another direction. Okay. When you're selling this to people and they're newer to functional programming and you're trying to help them distinguish between the actions and calculations, for those who get it, they get it. But when you're trying to make those sale cases, because, and we'll flash back to, I think it was our two-year episode ago, when we were talking about reframe, you're like, fire an action event, do a dispatch that says, I want something done here. I want to increment the counter. Right, something with a name. Don't just increment the counter in your button click. Have the button click dispatch some sort of message. Right, that says, please increment. So how do you sell that when you're working with people to help them log the fact that these are two different things? And yes, it's easy to turn a calculation into an act. And what have you found that's that reinforcing factor that says, hey, 
here's what it is. And you talk about it a little bit in the book so far, mm. but I feel that's going to be kind of a common theme is as you start to build these bigger programs, you're going to be like, Oh, here's more options. Here's this other stuff. Here's how you change all this stuff. What have you found from the selling side of helping people distinguish that contamination factor? I'm trying to think of how to approach this question because it's a really, it's a really important question. I think the most important thing that hasn't been done that I'm trying to do in the book is, like I said before, most books start with you already understanding the difference between pure functions and side effects, and they don't spend enough time there to even understand why they're important or how to reduce the number of side effects you have and things like that. So I have taken the approach that giving people more time, smaller exercises, quizzing them about, so what are the actions in this code? Little things like that get them used to the idea and let it really develop inside of them so that they'll have a visceral experience when they see an action. I feel like before I became a functional programmer, I had this idea that you could, in air quotes, abstract away the mutation. You could abstract away the database. So you could imagine an ORM, like Active Record, something like that, is abstracting away the database. And then you build some kind of model on top of Active Record that implements some business rules and things. And so the idea being, the subtle, implicit goal is that you don't have to worry about the database anymore. You don't have to think about it. You just call this method, everything happens, right? The effect of this is that you've got a mountain of stuff built on top of an action, built out of an action. The action is querying the database, storing to the database. So all the stuff that's built on top of it, it also is actions. And just going through that with the reader, showing them, look, you wrote this code. It seemed innocuous. You just did an insert statement into your SQL. And then something called that. You wrote a function that called that function. And then another function that called that function. And you think you're going to bury this somehow. Or now I can just say, set the price of this product. And it'll just set it, and you don't have to worry about it anymore. No, it's, you have to worry about all that. All that code now is a problem. <laughs> and, and I haven't found a book that just sits there with the reader for a whole chapter showing, look, all this code is now a problem. And you thought you were burying it. You thought you were covering it up and making it all clean and nice, but you're actually just burying it but it's still there. It's, the problem is still there. And then all the code you built on top of it is really hard to test. It's really hard to reuse because you wish you could change the price. The classic example is, can you create a user from a user ID or from some data without reading from the database? A lot of systems, people write in the constructor of the user object you give it an ID and it goes and it fetches all the data it needs from the database and sets all the internal fields and that's your constructor. And when you ask them why, they say it's very convenient. 
But it's not convenient because now to construct a user, you need a database connected. What if you want to construct a user and just see what happens just in a test? Like what happens if I call this method? You can't do that. You got to set up a whole database and put users in it. And like, so then you have all these, what are they called? Like data mocking frameworks. I don't even know what they call them. I'm blissfully not up on my object-oriented testing terminology. And so I do think that it is simply no one is talking about this from such a fundamental level that, well, they're not talking about, you see, you can't bury it. You have to extract the database out and build code that is calculations on top of calculations on top of calculations because that tower is testable. And then the database is separate. And then you can have something on top of those two that ties them together. And you could call that the model if you want to stick with MVC. So this model receives some kind of command and it runs the stuff through the business rules in a pure function. And then the answer it gets from that pure function, the return value, it stores in the database. So it's doing both. It's tying the two together. But the business rules cannot be built on top of the database. It's unsound for a bunch of reasons, and it's not the way that we do it in Functional Program. But no one, that's my contribution in the book, is that no one is going this basic in functional programming. No one is talking about that people are doing this stuff and they don't realize it. The object-oriented programmers are taught to do this. They're taught to bury it in like chains and chains of method calls and you don't realize that this thing at the end is still got to talk to the database. You can't abstract it away. It's going to be there. So pull it out. Have a, your business rules be totally pure and have something above them that ties them together. It takes me back to a little bit of that conversation we were having before we started recording when you're talking about just mocking everything up. That almost seems like one of those smells that said, look, for every mock you have to do to be able to test this thing, it represents one of those actions that you've got buried somewhere in there. Yeah. And could you treat this unit test as just something... As long as I can put data in and data out from that test, and there are no mocks around that test, you're probably pretty sure, again, maybe you're fudging it, like you said, with the closure, where you're like, okay, there's a put statement here, or there's this, we're, we're making, we're doing a bunch of mutability, but nobody in the outside world sees it, so for, for all we care, it is pure. But it's, that may be one of those things that I was looking for, because I was asking that greedily of, when I try and explain it, and how do I do it? It's like, how do I help signify people and pull those people along in lieu of your book being finished and saying, sure, <laughs> go sit down and read this book and read the first whatever number of chapters that are about understanding actions and calculations without me having to be like, okay, it's side effects. Well, it's a, like everything's a side effect. Pretty much. If you can't do this, it's a side effect. So that was me sending there brutally for me trying to find some of those tips to help across other languages. We're getting towards our time. I know you've got your videos and your blog posts and your podcasts, then you're, because you're still recording those and I still see those come out. Is there anything you want to cover that we haven't covered so far that you want to allude to before we sure, throw a bunch sure. of links at the user? 
I mostly wanted to talk about the book. So thank you for letting me spend that much time on it. I've got a bunch of closure videos that I've made. You know, I have a business, I call it purelyfunctional.tv, where I have these videos that I sell. You can also get access through a subscription membership. And yeah, I teach closure. I like to go into good depth on trying and teaching closure well. So if you're interested in closure, go check those out. I've also got the podcast that Proctor mentioned about functional programming where I explore these ideas. That one goes broader and deeper than the book will go because it's made for people who are already doing functional programming. It's not an intro to functional programming. So I just basically talk about whatever I'm thinking about. And that's at lispcast.com slash podcast. It's called A Theory of Functional Programming. So you can just search for it in your podcast app if you're interested. Oh, sorry. No, it's called Thoughts on Functional Programming. It used to be called The Theory of Functional Programming, but I changed it. And you're working on another round of videos about property testing, right? Those are actually done. Mm -hmm. Is there anything around any of those videos or any upcoming videos that you've got in the pipeline that you want to tease? Or is it mainly just the book at this point is where a lot of your energy is going to get them? Yeah, the book is where most of my energy is going. I'll talk about the property-based testing videos. I feel like property-based testing is a really important contribution to testing, you know, in the same sense that like mocking and stubbing is. And no one that I could find when I was doing my research has really started with the basics and gone through pretty deep because you can test distributed systems with it, right? This is in most circles considered untestable stuff, right? You can't test it because there's always highs and bugs, you know, there's all these race conditions just by the nature of it. But you can actually suss those things out with property-based testing because you can just throw, you can just run more tests, just run more tests, run the same test a hundred times. And you can run them as many times as you want. And I actually think it kind of breaks some of these CI service business models (laughs) that assume that you're going to run, your build is going to be fast and it's going to run once or, you know, maybe 10 times a day. But what you really want with property-based testing is you can just run it 24 hours a day looking for bugs. Anyway, the course starts with the basics. How do you build up generators? And it goes all the way into testing parallel systems, testing stateful systems, testing distributed systems. And I had to split it up. It was getting too long. So now it's three courses. It's beginner, intermediate, advanced. It's all in closure. But I'm trying to think if it wouldn't be useful for the other languages that are based on quick check. Haskell or Erlang has a quick check. I mean, I don't want to say it would be because maybe I'll have to do an addition that's like Erlang specific or Haskell specific. Anyway, it was probably a a boondoggle. Property-based testing is not that popular. I hope my course could make it more popular, but... It's probably the kind of course that only a few people will watch and will never really make much money. My next course will probably be something like creating a web app enclosure, you know, something very universally sought after, practical, let's just build something kind of thing. Yeah, I just saw the property testing one come out recently and 
I've dug into it a little bit from the Erlang side, but it is something that is fascinating, and every guest that comes on and talks about it, it is something that seems amazingly fascinating in hearing the depth. I just see that beginner side, like, even that stuff would be nice, but having the advanced stuff that you're talking about, like testing the city systems, it's like, yes, I know it can be done. It sounds fantastic and amazing. Yeah. But it's like, that seems so start far basic, away. Yeah, from, start basic, for sure. <laughs> well, just from, just even the basic sometimes seems far away of like, could I introduce this to a team or get this on and how do you get that ramped up too, so. I mean, that's a really important point. One of the things that has always bugged me with talks and other tutorials on property-based testing is they always, these are the ones I've seen, they always kind of cop out with what I consider to be the meat of it, which is actually making the properties. They'll say something like, and that's the real challenge is figuring out what the properties are, and then they move on. You're like, well, but you got to throw me a bone or something. Like, how do I begin, right? And it's not really that challenging. What you need is a bag of tricks. One trick is to use algebraic properties, right? And there's a list of them. You just look at them like, hmm, which one of these would be appropriate for my function? Another one is, you know, simply test the functionality of the thing. So in my course, I go through a bunch of these different strategies for finding properties. I didn't want to do the cop-out thing and say like, oh, it all depends on your code. No, you just need this bag of tricks. And you just build up this skill. Like, how do you make a generator that generates the kind of data you're looking for? That's a skill. It's not obvious. How do you come up with the properties that are going to test what you want to test? And you have this same problem in TDD, like if you're doing just unit testing, like example-based testing, you have this problem of, is it tested enough? When do I stop? I could always write another test. So you come up with some metric like code coverage, like line coverage, which isn't that great, but it gives you something at least, right? So part of the developing the properties is kind of getting this intuition for like covering the functionality that you need to make sure is your invariance of the function, you could test those. And then there's this idea of developing for stateful systems. What's really important there is not just you generate the inputs and you look at the output. You want to make sure that over time, some invariance hold, right? That some property holds. So that's where you develop this idea of a model that you're generating basically commands to the system. And you have a model that runs the commands then you run the commands through the system. Well, a basic interpreter, you know. So you do like, if it's a hash map or a, a key value store, the model is a hash map. It's supposed to act just like this hash map. And you do puts and gets and deletes and stuff to both at the same time. And you then at the end, you compare them, right? So you just randomly generate hundreds, thousands of puts and sets and gets and deletes. And you just check if it works. So once you have that, you can take that stateful test, turn it into a parallel test. You run it in two threads at the same time, basically. And then you take that parallel test, you turn it into distributed test, where you're able to test that this key value store works with multiple clients running at the same time. It's just an evolution at that point. So I think we're at our time. Is there any other stuff you want to plug? Anything you want to promote? Tell people where to find the book, get early access to it, to still in progress. 
What shouts out? What links you want to give everybody? I've got two sites to find me at lispcast.com. Lisp like the language, cast like a podcast. Lispcast.com. To find the podcast, it's lispcast.com slash podcast. And to get to the book, it's called Grokking Simplicity. It's at lispcast.com slash GS, Grokking Simplicity. That'll take you right to the book. If you want 50% off, there is a coupon code TSSimplicity, just one word, TSSimplicity. That'll give you 50% off. Use that at checkout. And then purelyfunctional.tv. It's the same URL as the name of the site. So purelyfunctional.tv, that's my videos and things. Closure videos. I'll get those added to the show notes so people can head back and make sure they hit the right places if they're listening in the car or wherever so they can find the actual links and not have to find the spot in the podcast where you gave that coupon code. Sure. Cool. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belton for the logo. And once again, thank you, Eric, for taking the time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you again, catching up, and seeing what you've been up to. And uh, I look forward to talking to you in the future and seeing how that book goes, because it is definitely one of the ones on my list for helping to bring others along on this functional program conversation. And it sounds like there might be others in the camp like me that find it as a good reference guide and next one through of like, oh, you've heard about it. Here's where you can find out more. Yeah, cool. Thank you for those kind words and thank you for everything you do. This podcast has been going for a long time and it's still going. So it's good to see that you're still still surfacing all this cool stuff in the functional programming world. Thank you. Well, thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.